Welcome to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. This week's episode of Westminster Insider is brought to you by Klarna. Klarna was created 16 years ago with a simple idea, to change the way you pay by charging retailers instead of our customers. Though we're 16, we like to think we're just getting started. Okay, so just before we get going, you need to know that this episode contains an extensive discussion of suicide. Now, for me, this is a massively important topic, which we ought to talk about a whole lot more than we do. But it's obviously something that some listeners may and will find distressing. So please be aware of that. Thanks. See how thick the gold cup flowers are lying in field and lane, with dandelions to tell the hours that never are told again, wrote the poet A.E. Houseman in his 19th century book of rural verse, A Shropshire Lad. And for me, at least, there are few more glorious places to be in summertime than Shropshire, a tucked-away county of hills and gorges, flowers and farmland, spires and steeples and endless market towns. I actually lived in the West Midlands for a while when I was younger, covering town hall politics for a local paper. And on sunny weekends, I used to ride back north right through the middle of Shropshire on a banged-up old Kawasaki took longer than just driving up the M6, but the winding lanes and the soaring landscapes made every minute worthwhile. I was last in the county in 2019, back when I still wrote the morning playbook emails for Politico, and used to embark on a tour of MPs' constituencies each summer. The purpose of my visit then was to see Owen Patterson, the Tory MP for North Shropshire, a former cabinet minister and one of Parliament's most prominent Brexiteers. We'd agreed to meet for lunch at a bistro in the little border town of Oswestry, and to be honest, I was a little unsure about what lay ahead. We'd never actually met before, and Patterson had the reputation of a Tory hardliner, a no-nonsense Brexiteer, a right-wing ideologue, even. I wasn't certain what he'd make of a former Daily Mirror hack, now writing gossipy morning emails for a Brussels-based media firm. I needn't have worried. Owen was both straightforwardly charming and charmingly straightforward, a country gent with a sharp sense of humour and a wicked sparkle in his eye. I remember his delight when I ordered a thick-cut steak. I was going to have fish and chips, he said, hastily changing his order to match mine with a chuckle. And over a long lunch, we talked about Brexit, about his constituency and about his life in rural Shropshire. He spoke a little about his wife, Rose, telling me a wonderful story about a horse-riding adventure they'd embarked upon a few years before, when he was Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. And so that day, that story, in fact, was the memory which came flooding back to me the following year, in that terrible summer when everything changed for the Pattersons. It was June 2020 that Rose Patterson died, by suicide, in Woodland not far from their Shropshire home. She was 63 years old, a mother of three, a grandmother, a successful businesswoman, and the chairwoman of Aintree Racecourse. She and Owen had been married for 40 years. It was her husband's birthday. Uh, On the 23rd of June, I was in my office in the House of Commons, um making pretty pointless video calls to other MPs sitting in their offices in the House of Commons. It was my custom always to bring my wife, Rose, 
we generally have a brief call in the morning and probably another one in the evening. One that was always busy. They were nearly always quite unsatisfactory calls. One that was always in a rush. And she was a very busy person. She was chairman of entry race course and involved in a whole range of other activities. So I didn't think it was particularly odd when that morning she didn't answer. And I sent her a text, said, just give us a buzz whenever you're free. Owen was speaking to me earlier this week via Zoom from the home in Shropshire, which he and Rose shared for so many years. I do think it was strange in the evening she didn't reply because she was very organised and always came in, did her emails and caught up on things she might have done during the day. And things began to go horribly wrong when my second son, who's here alone with his uh, then fiancé and now wife, rang and said he was really worried and hadn't seen her all day. So he said, search in train with some neighbours who very kindly helped and searched all the grounds and the woods around here and found nothing by 8.15. It's clear things were getting extremely worrying. So I rang the Met from my office in the Commons and they alerted West Mercia Police who put on an amazing operation very rapidly. And I then drove home with my eldest son as fast as we could, got home about half past midnight. And through that whole process, we were ringing Ned, my second son, suggesting all sorts of ideas. She might have had a stroke, she might have had a heart attack, she might have had some strange respiratory collapse, she might have been swimming in the wood and slipped and banged her head, she might have fallen in the brook, she might have been attacked. What we never, ever once suggested was what had actually happened. And uh, the policeman in charge of the operation came up to me and said, uh, does your wife suffer from depression? This is half past midnight. It's been a really hot June day, and I was actually quite irritated. <laughs> Got guys standing around. Let's get let's go. That should be dehydrating. And uh, of course, sadly, he knew um, exactly what he was looking for, and they found Rose early hours of the morning. I suppose three, four o'clock. There was no sign of any struggle or anything else. No one else had been involved at all. So this came completely and totally out of the blue. We had no inkling of this. Whatever. Owen is sitting in the stately-looking office where he and Rose did much of their desk work. Walls painted a bold red and books piled high on the shelves. It's now almost a year since Rose died and the shock remains as raw as it did that first fateful day last summer. Still, nobody knows, perhaps we'll never really know, why she chose to take her life. She was on no medication, and this is where my lesson is for other people. We knew she was anxious. She was anxious about worries about my political life. She got much more sensitive to press articles. There have been some very ill-informed press articles about her position in the jockey club. She'd just been a steward of the jockey club. She absolutely hated all that stuff. Um, she had had COVID. I had it really badly in March. I can't really remember how bad she was because we, <laughs> we were in different rooms because I was making such a filthy coughing noise and keeping her awake. But she didn't really believe in being ill. I don't think she went to bed properly. And we have got evidence since that women are disproportionately not afflicted clinically. Fewer women go to hospital, fewer women thankfully die. But there is evidence they're affected more neurologically. But nothing we had at any stage gave us a hint it was going to be this bad. For Owen and his family, the extreme shock of learning how Rose had died was exacerbated by the busy and seemingly fulfilling life she'd been living right up to her final hours. Indeed, memories of her many plans and activities are still scattered around the family home, around the table even, 
where he sits. The thing we found very hard to cope with at the time was that she had a parallel, very active life. So if I look on my shoulder, I'll see her notes for an atrium meeting. She was to chair that morning. She was due to go to London to see an aunt who had been alone in the lockdown. And then she was going to go off and do some shopping for a dinner for my birthday. And then she was going to go to France and my daughter. She'd already bought the Eurostar ticket to go out a day after. So we found it very, very hard to understand that all these preparations had been taken. And there was a huge hoo-ha about the Eurostar ticket because she wanted to get back because I was deemed incapable of looking after myself alone for two weekends running. Rose left no suicide note and gave no hint to any of her family or friends what she was planning to do. As he grieves the loss of his wife, Owen has spent much of his time trying to understand why she chose the course of action that she did. I mean, obviously, I spent a lot of time in the last nearly, nearly whatever, well, 11 months now, um, talking to many people who know a huge amount about uh, suicide, being very kind to me, a lot of academics, specialists. Um, and I've talked to people who've also tried to take their lives by suicide. And um, there is this very good expression of a, a snake bite. People just get taken hold of this with an urge that what, whatever the pressures they're under, they can only see one solution, and that is to end their life. And another very good expression is a mental heart attack. This, this take, causes a sort of surge, which just washes out everything else. Can you just tell us a little bit about the sort of person Rose was and why it was such a shock that, that this would have happened? Yes, well, I mean, her circumstances make it even more incomprehensible. So she's highly intelligent. Uh, we met at Cambridge. We read history together. She's extraordinarily well-read. She had great taste. She, had, uh, she worked for Sotheby's, and then she worked for Telegraph as an arts critic in the North. Very good animal. She rode beautifully, very good judge of horses. And her career was really sort of taking off in her later years. So she hadn't just been a very successful chairman of Ancient Racecourse. She'd picked up what was already a very successful operation, but had really taken it forward, making it much more user-friendly for people who were less used to going racing, particularly for women. And then she had the Grand Women's Summit, which was promoting women in sport from right across every area of sport. She got the numbers up. I think the, the last television uh, audience, her last national, was over 10 million. And it, I think it's 600 million worldwide. So it's a massive event, of course, and not good for anxiety because you basically have a year's work concertina to three days. On, on the back of that, they'd made her a steward of the jockey club. She was doing a lot of stuff on, on horse welfare, which is a tragedy for racing, but she's still not involved in that. And then she was involved in charities. The last thing she did, actually, the last autumn was... Um, raise money for our world-class orthopaedic hospital just up the road. So all in all, she was an incredibly active, busy person. I don't think I ever remember a single person who didn't like her, which is a pretty rare achievement as a human being. And then bang, this happened. <laughs> and wonderful mother, she's got a grandchild. All our children were here with their wives, wife's partners during the lockdown. So she'd never seen so much of her children for many years, really. And her grandchild. Just going over this catalogue, it is utterly extraordinary that she should have taken this step. Throughout our conversation, it's impossible not to be impressed at the way Owen can speak so candidly about all this. He and his children have set up a charity, the Rose Patterson Trust, to honour Rose and to aid the cause of suicide prevention. And this is just one of multiple TV and radio interviews he's given about her death over the past few months. 
It must be impossibly hard, I say, to speak about these issues in such a public forum. I think about it the whole time. And my belief is if, if from the horror that we're going through and will continue to go through, our, our belief as a family is if we can just help just one single family from going through the extreme anguish that we are, we'll have done some good. And that's why we've set up the charity, the Rose Patterson Trust, where we are currently raising money and we hope to help projects and charity, other smaller charities which work to prevent suicide. You know, from these broadcasts I'm doing, I have had some remarkable emails from people that said they were thinking of doing something really terrible and had second thoughts. And, and that, no conversation to me, but at least we might, we might just have done some good. I do have this odd position, really, that's been very, very directly affected by suicide, but I have a place in national politics as an MP of 24 years standing and a government that is very, very willing to listen. We felt we couldn't just sort of bottle all this up and uh, go public about it without actually having a bit of skin in the game too and trying to, and trying to really learn how we could do things on the ground. Various charities and campaign groups run training courses on suicide awareness for employers designed to help people spot and assist colleagues and acquaintances who find themselves in a vulnerable state. Owen is convinced they could save hundreds, if not thousands, of lives. I'm a very big advocate of suicide awareness training in the Merseyside Trust, where they took over mental health in Liverpool prison. They have very, very markedly reduced suicides there by a concerted programme of suicide awareness training. And I'm, I'm very clear, every MP should do it. All the staff in MPs' office should do it. Every newspaper editor should do it. Every journalist should do it. Every head of a company should do it. Every head of a trades union should do it. Every head of a charity should do it. And then it should cascade down. Every doctor, every nurse, every teacher, every head teacher should be doing this. Because we have this question every minute. How on earth didn't we notice? Why didn't we notice? We knew she was anxious about things, but we had no idea how intense that was. And going the other way, why on earth didn't she tell us? If she told us a, a little bit of it, everything could have been so, so different. You're listening to Westminster Insider with myself, Jack Blanchard, and the Conservative MP, Owen Patterson. We're going to have to pause the interview briefly now for a short advert. But coming up in part two... Owen will tell us the fabulous story about the time he and Rose rode a thousand kilometres across Outer Mongolia in the world's most dangerous horse race, with David Cameron trying frantically to get him on the phone. And he'll talk about how he's been coping for the past 12 months, and about the friends and colleagues both in Shropshire and in Westminster who he's been relying on for help and support. Stay with us. This is an advert from Klarna. In the time it takes to listen to this advert, buy now, pay later customers in the UK will have saved £100 in interest charges. Over a year, that adds up to £76 million, the same as it costs to build the London Eye. We're able to save customers money because we charge retailers a fee instead of the customer, and 14 million shoppers in the UK seem to like it. So why pay interest and why pay fees when there's a smarter way to pay? Klarna. Oh, there's another 100 quid. Please shop responsibly. 18 plus UK residents only. Credit subject to status. TNCs apply. Credit provided by Klarna Bank ABC. Klarna.com for details. Last time I saw you, back in 2019, and we had a terrific steak lunch in Oswestry. I don't know if you remember. 
Um, but you, you told yeah, we went to the Winstead, didn't we? Yeah, we we did, and it was terrific. And you told me the most wonderful story about going horse riding with Rose in Mongolia, and it really stuck with me. And I remembered it long afterwards. Would you mind just telling listeners a little bit about that derby? Um, because it sounded like such an amazing experience that you both shared together. Yes, well, it was towards the end of my first six, seven months, I suppose, as Secretary of State in Northern Ireland, and I think Rose has been reading one of the Sunday magazines. And there was a description of the Mongol Derby, which is the longest horse race in the world, which replicates Genghis Khan's Pony Express. The reason, one of the reasons that the Mongols were so incredibly successful was they had this very, very efficient mail system. And they had staging posts of these little Mongol horses every about 25, 30 miles. And this race replicated that. And Rose said, well, if we don't do this now, it's the sort of thing we never will. And as a sort of warm up. Okay, now I looked into this after listening to Owen's story. Every year, 40 or 50 riding enthusiasts gather in Mongolia for the world's longest and frankly craziest horse race. It's a thousand kilometres across the Mongolian landscape, stretched over multiple days, riding semi wild horses picked up from herdsmen along the way. It's gruelling and highly dangerous. There are multiple hazards involved. It's not really the sort of activity you expect a serving cabinet minister to get involved in. We found the sort of security of being Secretary of State and all that quite confining. And she says, I think I'm going to go and do it. I said, well, you, you can't possibly, because one of her weaknesses, she had no sense of direction. I said, you'll get, you'll get lost on the way to Oswald Street. You know, I, I'm going to have to come with you. <laughs> so, so we then found out that we could get sponsorship. And I'd just had a bad fall riding, and very nearly broken my neck. I'd been in the orthopedic hospital up the road. And I said, we ought to raise money for them. And also, as so State Northern Ireland, I've worked with the Royal Irish Regiment, and, and they're also based in my constituent Turnhill. So we started raising money for them. That sort of locked us in. So we flew off, left our security guards behind, which was great. And we had no idea what we were getting into. And we assembled with a, an eclectic group of people from all over the world. And there was a very experienced, uh, long-distance British rider. There was a show jumper from Mexico. Nice guy from Spain who had won his lottery, sadly broke his wrist before we started. And we really didn't know what we were getting into. And we hadn't bothered to learn how to use the sat-nav. And it was quite rough. Uh, These little horses wanted to get rid of you. They wanted to go home. So day one, we had a nice English lady um, broke her ribs. Day two, guy from Hong Kong had his thumb torn off and had to have his thumb amputated. And it sort of got worse. I think we had a broken shoulder, broken arm several collapse from heat stroke and sort of dysentery and general exhaustion. We rode for 14 hours a day and we tried to ride two or three horses a day. And it was an extraordinary experience. It was excruciatingly boring at times. <laughs> the, you know, the gobies just just completely flat. But then there'll be moments of astounding beauty. We would come across wonderful wild birds or you'd find a whole couple of miles of chamomile and you'd be cantering across the chamomile, the smell of chamomile coming up, horses' hooves. Again, just to zoom out for a second, this is the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland and his wife, both then in their 50s, trekking 14 hours a day across the Gobi Desert on semi-wild horses in highly dangerous conditions. As I'm listening to this, I'm just trying to imagine Gavin Williamson or Michael Gove or Boris Johnson taking on this challenge. Gloriously, at one point, David Cameron's chief of staff, Ed Llewellyn, actually contacts Patterson via satellite phone to tell him Parliament is being recalled. 
this is back in 2011, due to rioting in London. Patterson takes the call from a remote campsite in the middle of a late-night desert rainstorm. I said, I said look, Ed, I, I am generally in outer Mongolia. <laughs> and uh, we've only just got to this camp tonight, only just. The horses were really struggling, swimming the rivers. And there's no way any vehicle would get across these rivers. I don't know how long it's going to rain for. And even if we got across the rivers in the car, we're oh, a day or two days' drive from uh, UB, Ulaanbaatar. And he said, well, I mean, I understand you're not going to make it back. Can I ask your advice on water cannon? <laughs> and so I had this utterly bizarre conversation, pointing the sat phone at the moon. I had to keep pointing at the moon. I lost the signal about the merits and demerits and costs of water cannon and how to deploy them as the rain poured down of the Mongolian skies. That was, that was probably one of the most bizarre conversations I've ever had. Many of the riders dropped out of the race through injury or exhaustion. Owen and Rose pressed on. In the end, it became a, a very much a mental effort. And mentally, we had to be just really determined. And, and Rose was really tough about this. And, and I, I give credit to her, she was brave too. Um, and she had one bad day. Um, there's a, a horrible thing called a marmot, which lives in the Gobi, which is like an enormous great ferret. Uh, it's the last reservoir of the bubonic plague, and it digs um, a, what looks like a badger set. And uh, we were cantering quite fast once, and Rose, Rose went into one of these holes. And the thing did a complete somersault and absolutely buried her. And we were very lucky because what normally happened was the horses would clear off and go home, and, and the person would be left. And will be abandoned like someone behind sort of enemy lines with a, a bottle of water, a biscuit, and a sat nav button saying, I've lost, basically, I've lost my horse. And many hours later, someone would turn up and collect them. But on this occasion, we were dead lucky. There were some herdsmen nearby who were really quick. And they slapped on saddles on their horses and scooted off up the valley and caught them. And then poor Rosie got worse. We got into the horse station. As Rose was getting off, this one that had a fall, a bit jazzed up, gave her the most almighty kick. And she just said, it was the only time she complained, she said, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really enjoying this. <laughs> <laughs> and the food was indescribably appalling. And Rose was a vegetarian. It made it really difficult. We basically lived off um, glucose tablets and boiled water. And we completed. And we had to complete. And we raised, raised 120,000 quid. I think we split it between... Royal Irish and the, and the orthopedic. So it was, it was an amazing thing to have done. And she was very, very gutsy. Our motto at bad moments was KBO. It's what Churchill in 1941. Keep buggering on. And these must be memories that you really cherish now, I guess. Yeah, what's well, so sad, you know. Could have another 20 years worth. Won't happen now. One of the many things Owen is clearly struggling with is the impact Rose's suicide has had not just on himself, but on everyone they both knew. He believes people in severe mental distress become blinded to how devastating their death would be for all those around them. And I did think for a time that doing these broadcasts might do some good. And I think it does in some ways to explain to people the absolute shocking damage. Obviously, first of all, it, it may sound idiotic, this, but the, the, the most catastrophic damaged person obviously is the person who who's taken their own life, because every life is worthwhile and should be continued. 
But the damage to those around is very significant. There's a figure of 135 people are seriously affected by each suicide, which I think is a massive underestimate. And certainly it's in Rosie's case, with all the things she was doing. But it's obviously changed my life forever and my family's, but many, many close friends and people she was working with in the world of, of racing and charity and all the arts world, everything else she was doing. They are very drastically affected. And when you think, what, what six, about six and a half thousand people die each year, their own hand, you take that 135 people, and I think it's more, you've got the thick end of 900,000 to a million people, very seriously affected. And that, that is why we really, really have to address this. It's the biggest cause of death in people under 35. It's 15 jumbo jets a year. Now, if you have 15 jumbo jets go down a year, Department of Transport wouldn't exist. You wouldn't have Boeing. You wouldn't have Airbus. You wouldn't have Rolls-Royce. The whole lot, there would be a huge concerted effort to try to stop this. And I do think we really have to have a major, major national campaign. To that end, Owen has spent much of his time over the past 12 months speaking to different ministers about how to start addressing the problem. One focus has been the government's forthcoming online harms bill, a groundbreaking piece of legislation which he hopes will help tackle some of the pro-suicide websites, which he blames, in part, for Rose's death. I've talked to Matt Hancock, talked to Nadine Dorries, um, Caroline Dynage very importantly on the online safety bill, because Rose was looking at these websites which have an incredibly dangerous, beguiling, seductive narrative that in simple, simple terms, all lives have a positive, constructive phase, and then they plateau, and then sadly all lives come to a point where there is no further purpose in continuing. And it's an entirely proper, sensible, logical, sane action to decide to end that life. Now, that's something which is being addressed. Now, I mean, I really admire what the government's doing. It's an extraordinarily difficult thing to do, the online safety bill. But simply trying to ban such websites, Owen says, is not the answer. I don't use the word closing them down because I think they'll just go underground. My expression is to counter technology with technology. What I'm concerned about the bill is that it does build in capacity for the future because none of us has, none of us has a clue what our iPhone is going to look like in five, let alone 10 years' time. But I have great faith in technology that there will be technical developments. It might be iris recognition or voice tone recognition, whatever. It might be the way you type in something. We've got to beat technology with technology. I think glibly saying we're going to ban them is a complete waste of time because they'll just pop up somewhere else. It's a mark of the journey Owen has been on during the trauma of the past 12 months that he now finds himself working to promote suicide prevention alongside some of the Labour Party's most prominent figures. I have pulled together a group of people. We had a round table. So we had Alistair Campbell and Richard Bergen quite a long way down the other end of the political seesaw from me. But Alice has been very brave. He's written this book all about his own depression and suicide in his own family. And Richard's had a terrible case in his constituency and he's determined to try to help on these uh, websites. So I think the, the whole issue is completely non-party political. But it is a massive problem. And bluntly, I find it extraordinary that I have been an MP for 24 years. And I think I was only touched by, by one suicide in a prison. But I really, until this happened, had absolutely no idea of the absolute catastrophic consequences for so many people, which will go on for so many years. The biggest worry for Owen now is the effect that 18 months of lockdowns may have had on the mental health of so many. 
in the next 90 minutes, a UK citizen will take their own life. In the next four minutes, a UK citizen will try and fail. There's not been any increase in suicides so far following the various lockdowns. But I'm really, really generally concerned because after the economic downturn in 2008, you didn't see the increase in suicides come through until 2011, 2012. So now is the time to make a concerted effort because we all know these lockdowns have been far more difficult for people than anything they went through in 2008. People being isolated, losing human contact, losing family contact. I've had numerous cases, considerably cases, where people are quite open about it. They have got, they've got severe mental problems and have had very, very bad thoughts. So I, I just think that this is a sort of moment in our history as we come out of this appalling crisis with COVID. And people have had a very, very difficult time. And I think people are more aware of mental illness. The government is pushing very hard on it. But I think this isn't something that, that the government can do. So my constant request to people is please talk. And I have this simplistic idea. If you see someone looking miserable by the coffee machine at work, don't walk past them. Just have a word with them. And if you're feeling anxious and haven't gone to the doctor, haven't got medication and haven't asked for help, I really appeal to those people. Talk to your family, talk to your children, talk to your doctor, talk to a friendly school teacher you know. Anyone, don't bottle it up. Can you tell us about the reaction you've had personally from speaking about this? You must have had lots of messages from people, emails and letters and so on, have you? They've all been incredibly kind. I mean, I was absolutely bombarded with letters, messages, emails and everything when it, when it happened. And for several months afterwards, and some people are the kind, they, they said, I, you know, I've got stuff in November saying, well, we knew you'd have a busy at the time, but we didn't want to feel you'd, you'd been forgotten. Yes, and, and, and uh, many colleagues have been extraordinarily kind and helpful. Lots of people listening to this will know you, Owen, or they'll have followed you closely. We're well listened to in Westminster. They'll be wanting to know how you are personally. How, how have you been the last year and how are you doing now? Because this must be such an impact on your own mental health. Um, well, the honest answer is badly. Uh, every day is bad and some days are terrible and some days are really terrible. Uh, and strange things triggered off. You know, so two days after... Rose died at my birthday present arrived, which is a couple of trees. And there's a went down the wood last night, a wonderful Shropshire thorn. Uh, and that just sets you off. You know, she'll never see it. It's stunning. It's already flowering. Amazing in its first year. So it's very difficult. And can you tell us how you'll be marking the day later this month? Have you thought about that? No, good question. We're all going to be here. We haven't really decided. Um, it'd be very difficult. It's already difficult. You know, June has been looming, and today is June. And it's all looking stunning, which makes it all the more utterly incomprehensible how she could have taken this terrible step, and she'll never see it again. And the, 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 tree, the trees and flowers and things she planted are a very important part of this, that they keep reminding you of what it was like this time last year. So as we went through May, there is trees and things um, coming to flower, reminded we were getting closer. And seeing these seeing these thorns coming out, particularly this one she bought me, there's a sorbus just coming to leaf and stuff. Uh, that's all very, very difficult. So I don't quite know what we're going to do, to be honest. We will all assemble. My last question is, is there any advice you might be able to offer others who are in your position? Is there anything you've learned over the last year that you think can help or ways of dealing with things? I think keep talking and, and get help. 
it is worth talking to consultants who specialize in grief and absolutely don't bottle it up. Just keep talking to someone. So I have a few friends who I'm completely brutally frank with. And they've been an enormous help to me. Because a lot of people find it very embarrassing. They don't quite know how to handle it and find it very difficult and don't want to impose. So I think in my case, I've got a small number of friends, you know, some in politics, some, some not, who, who've been really marvellous. But don't. This whole, whole issue is all about bottling up. Please, this terrible stiff up nonsense. Don't bottle it up. Talk. Don't hide how difficult it is. I texted Owen the morning after the interview to thank him again for his time and honestly just to check he was doing okay after our conversation. He came back immediately and asked if we could have a further chat on mic. He'd been thinking more about his wife overnight and had more wonderful stories he wanted to tell about her bravery out in the desert. We set up a second Zoom call and later wove all the lovely extra details he'd remembered into the narrative that you've just heard. At the end of this second conversation, just before signing off, I asked Owen the question that had been burning in my mind since we'd spoken. I was full of admiration for how candid he'd been, how openly he was speaking about what had happened. Had he ever considered taking what I fear would be my natural course of action? To get out of public life? Maybe step down as an MP? Just basically hide away? Hmm, yeah, a good question. I don't think it did, actually, because... You know, I've been an MP here in North Shropshire for uh, 24 years. It's a place I was born here. I've always lived around here. Um, I've got a lot of friends here. So, um, people here have been very, very kind. I felt it would have been so rather awful to walk away from it. And, and, I, and I do have this belief, which I tried to express earlier, that um, I really would try to like, get something positive out of this horror. And for us, it's too late. For me and my children, we're all, we're all traumatised, we're all miserable. Um, it's very, very difficult. There's no point in hiding that. But if we could do something which helped save just one other family going through what we're going through, and will continue to go through, certainly my guess, rest of my life, it, it's, it's something positive. And I, and I feel to, to have walked away it would have been to sort of bottle it. You know, I can talk to Matt Hancock all these wonderful charities, you know, Samaritans, Mind, Zero Suicide Alliance. I've got to know them a little bit in the last few months. And, and again, with them, I, can, I think I can help. And I can be a voice for them. I think it's been pretty feeble for me to have walked away. It's not, nothing's going to bring her back. Nothing's going to make me happy. And so if I, if I can make people aware... Um, Perhaps I might do a little bit of good, and we might just stop, just stop one family. If I could just stop one family, I'd have done something worthwhile. Because it is, um, it is almost intolerable. Now, this is normally the point in the podcast where I try to sum up what we've just heard with a glib phrase or a trite comment or two. Instead. I think we'll just finish with a little more from A.E. Houseman. There's a passage towards the end of A Shropshire Lad, where Houseman reflects on how the passing of the seasons can, hopefully, in time, come to help those carrying great burdens. In my own shire, if I was sad, homely comforters I had. 
The earth, because my heart was sore, Sorrowed for the sun she bore, And standing hills longed to remain, Shared their short-lived comrade's pain, And bound for the same bourne as I, On every road I wandered by, Trod beside me, close and dear, The beautiful and death-struck year. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. If you've been affected by what you've heard in this podcast, or if you're struggling with your own mental health at the moment, like so many of us do at different points in our lives, or if you just need someone to speak to, the Samaritans are a wonderful organisation and they are ready to take your call on 116-123. And if you'd like to learn more about the Rose Patterson Trust or to make a donation, you can do so online at rosepattersontrust.com. My producer this week was Emma Barnaby of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez, and my managing editor is James Randerson. I'll be back next week. I'll see you then.